0: And I'm Courtney, and this is Caffeinated
1: Crimes. Welcome back to another 2021 episode where the world is still turning,
0: thankfully, so that's exciting. Yeah, the inauguration happened this week, and not going to lie, I was a little nervous. Yep. I was really nervous that something was going to happen, but it seemed like everyone stayed home or they were intercepted at some point, so went really well. Michelle Obama looked like a motherfucking queen. Always. 100%. I mean, they all did, but I mean, Michelle Obama stole the show, in yes. my opinion. But, Agreed. Yeah,
1: so it went well. It did. We have a new president. Everything is calm as of January 23rd when we are recording this. <laughs> you never People know. People are
0: already blaming him and saying that he, in his 34 hours, tanked the economy because- yep. He's very powerful, but, you know, that's what it is, and that's going to be life for the next forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, pretty much. Just always
1: blame whoever is in office or who was just in office, depending on what your views are, is pretty much how it goes. So, you know, but that that did happen. That went smoothly. Um, A couple of big deaths this week. Um, Hank Aaron died yesterday,
0: so that's super Mm -hmm. sad. Yeah, and then this morning... um, From when we're recording, uh, Larry King died. Cause of Death hasn't been released yet, but he Mm -hmm. was having some COVID-19 symptoms he was being treated for, so I don't know if it was complications from that, but that one was... That one took me by surprise. Yeah. Um, To me, I guess, ever since I grew up, like, Larry King has looked the same for as long (laughs) as I can remember, and so I just kind of thought he would live forever, so it's really sad. Um, So yeah, both... Hank Aaron's family and Larry King's family, our thoughts are with you. That's really a sucky thing to have to go through.
1: Yeah, especially during this time where we know that funeral services are completely different or non-existent or, you know, it's just a whole new thing. And it was crazy. I didn't realize that they were almost the same age when I was looking it up just now before we started recording. Um, One was 86, one was 87. I can't remember which was which, but it just, it shows you, like, how recent Hank Aaron's time was because I mm-hmm. think when we look back on history it always seems like it was so long ago but like it really wasn't you know yeah so um also yesterday skeletal remains were found um in the state park that Andrew and I take the dogs to all the time so that's crazy um apparently a guy was out in, like, a really wooded area looking for places to hunt, which I'm not sure I knew you could hunt in a state park, but I don't know. Maybe there's some kind maybe of... Maybe
0: you just have to have, like, a permit or yeah, something.
1: possibly, or, like, only in certain areas or whatever. Um, but he did find skeletal remains, because at first it said remains, and I'm like, is that, like, a body? Like, it was recent, or but it does seem like they have been there for a while. Um So they don't have any information yet. You know, they have been sent off to try to determine anything about who this person was and they're asking anyone with information to come forward. But yeah, just crazy. No idea if it was foul play or someone got lost out there or, you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's... I don't know. I always seem so scary to be like, just kind of going about your business and then being like, oh no, what did I come across? Yeah, I can't Um, even imagine. Like, that would just be insane. Yeah, Knoxville had some pretty... Shitty things happen. Uh, yesterday morning, thankfully, before they were open, I don't think anyone was there. Somebody shot at the Planned Parenthood. Um, so, I, as far as I know, no one was there. No injuries. It's yeah. just some dick being a dick, apparently. Um, so, hopefully, that'll be okay. Planned Parenthood gets pretty bad rap. They do do good. I yes. just said do-do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a child, guys. <laughs> uh, anyway, no. But they do a lot of good. They yes. Don't, just do abortions, so um, yeah, that's super crappy. And I also realized we're talking about all these sad things before a really, really tough episode. Yeah, these um, next two episodes of our three part are rough <sighs> mostly because it's victim after victim after victim after remains found. Like, it's you don't get the satisfaction for, for a while, <laughs> so. Yes. But we did want to do
1: our first three-parter with this one because there are so many victims and we did not want to leave out any information that's available about them. So like you guys know, we do like to tell the victim stories as much as possible. Um, In this one, sometimes there's a lot of background, sometimes there's not, but we really wanted to include as much information as we could find to make sure that it is centered around them. So that's why we decided to go ahead with the full three-parter instead of trimming it down to fit into two parts because their stories deserve to be told.
0: Yeah, and especially, you know, if there was a lot of information on a victim, like, I wanted to include it because there are so many victims, as you'll see, who get this is their name, they disappeared, their bodies were found, like... That's that's all we know. Like, you don't really get any background. So anything we could tell that was relevant, you know, I'm not going to deep dive too much into their mother's history, (laughs) but... um, if you want all that, definitely go read the Anne Roll book that we'll mention in our references. Yes, um, it was it was a really great read. She goes into a lot of detail. We've yeah. definitely skimmed it down, so we weren't here for like six parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not turning this into a, a new series. So yeah, <laughs> no, I can't do that.
1: No, so yeah, sorry, we don't have any any uppers to start with. Hopefully, our perks of the week at the end will you know suffice, but. I guess we're just going to get into it. Um, so as you guys have seen from the title of the episode, we are doing the green river killer. Um, this one has been on our list from the very beginning. I think, I think he's always Mm -hmm. been on there. Um, this was my first like true crime deep dive in high school. Um, I took a forensic science class and everyone had to read a book on a serial killer. Basically, I think we drew names for one. Um, And I actually drew Ted Bundy, and there was a guy in my class that was like, I'll pay you $15 to do Ted Bundy. And I was, you know, working at the grocery store, and I'm like, that's like two and a half hours of work. Sure, you can have him. So (laughs) I traded with him, and I got the Green River Killer. Um, So I did read... Ann Rule's book that we read this time.
0: So I'm going to go ahead and let Jacqueline get a little break before she has to start talking. Um, and so our references are Green River Running Red, The Real Story of the Green River Killer, America's Deadliest Serial Killer. It's a tongue full by Ann Rule. So we use the nswp.org website, which is the National Sex Work Project. Um, and it is the Stella information. That's where we're going to get a lot of our sex work terminology from. The Seattle Times, Good Old Murderpedia, uh, The Big Book of Serial Killers by Jack Rosewood and Rebecca Lowe, and Crone Line website. So Courtney had to read
1: the sources because I got a little tongue-tied <laughs> trying to get through the annual title, <laughs> so thank you for doing that, Courtney. Um, You're welcome. But yes, basically I read this book in high school, so that was my first like serial killer deep dive, and then now here we are. 10-ish years later, coming back around, so... It's all full circle. Let's do it. So on July 15th, 1982, two young boys found the body of a young woman snagged on pilings under the Peck Bridge on Meeker Street in Kent, Washington. She had floated down the Green River, and her arms and legs were entangled in a rope or some kind of similar bond. Police suspected that she had been strangled, and she had been in the river for several days, but no one had come forward to identify her. She was white, about 25 years old, 5 foot 4, and around 140 pounds. She had no identification on her body, and she wore unhemmed jeans, a lace-trimmed blue and white striped blouse, and white leather tennis shoes. Um, She had been choked with her own panties. So the Green River was running low in July of 1982, and much of the shore was exposed, so it wouldn't have been hard for a man or multiple men to carry her from a vehicle to the river, but it would have had to have been done at night um, because that area was fairly visible. So she had five tattoos on her body and police believed that four of her tattoos were a local motorcycle gang, Mark, and it might be the likeliest lead if any of the members would admit to knowing her. So she had not drowned, but had been dead when she was placed into the river. And when a description of her tattoos were published, a tattoo artist recognized his work and came forward to identify her. Um, So he knew her as Wendy Lee Caulfield and she was only 16 years old. Um, Detectives found her mother Virginia and she was shocked but she also said she kind of expected it because she suspected that Wendy had been working as a sex worker and might have been attacked and killed by a client. Virginia said that she had been a good little girl when they were living in the country but she ran into trouble when they moved to Auburn and Kent. Um, And Wendy and Virginia never had much money because Virginia struggled to support both of them after her and her husband Herb divorced. Herb.
0: After her and her husband Cilantro divorced.
1: (laughs) After her and her husband Herb divorced. So they moved frequently to different low-income apartments and even sometimes lived in a tent in the summer months um, and picked blackberries to sell so that they could buy food. So Wendy dropped out of school in junior high and by mid-1982 Virginia and Wendy were living in another rundown apartment in downtown Pilot. After she stopped going to school she enrolled in Kent Continuation School in the hopes that she could catch up Um, but she was just a chronic runaway and her mom eventually did just lose control of her and she was known to police for minor offenses and had recently taken $140 in food stamps from one of their neighbors. And one night when Wendy was around 14 or 15, she came home and she told her mom that a man had raped her while she was hitchhiking. Um, and her mom told her that that's what happens when you hitchhike.
0: So. The 80s, folks. <laughs> oh,
1: um, So Wendy changed after this and her problems grew worse, as you would expect. Um, she had been in Remmen Hall, a juvenile detention center in Tacoma, and then in a foster home. And she was last seen in the foster home on July 8th. Um, When she went to visit her grandfather she got a 24-hour pass and she never returned home. So she was listed as a runaway but no one was actively looking for her because she did have this chaotic history and they believed that she had just taken off. So Wendy's murder was reported in the news but very little. Um, Locals were very scared this summer but not because of Wendy's murder because two people in Auburn had suddenly died of cyanide poisoning after taking extra strength, etc. So that was like the big headline at the time, not this body that was found in the river. Um, So as time went on, Wendy's death was just rarely talked about. So then on August 12th, about four weeks after Wendy's body was found, another body was found in the Green River about a quarter of a mile south of where Wendy was found. Um, It wasn't clear where her body was put into the river, but she was naked and she had been trapped in a net of tree branches and logs. And she was easier to identify because her fingerprints were in police files. So she was Deborah Lynn Bonner and she was 22 years old and had also been working as a sex worker. Um, In the 30 days before her body was found, she had been arrested twice for offering sex for money and the last time Deborah was seen alive was 18 days before on July 25th. She had left the Three Bears Motel telling a friend that she hoped to catch some dates but she never returned. So Deborah grew up in Tacoma along with her two younger brothers. She had dropped out of school two years before graduation and she had trouble finding jobs but she was excited about the possibility of joining the navy but unfortunately she failed the test. So she then planned to get her GED and start a better life for herself um, but then she fell in love with a man who was happy for her to support him. Um, and so the only way she found that she could do that was through sex work um, and at first life with He is named Max in the book, but that is an alias. We cannot find his real name. Um, It was exciting, and he treated her like a queen, and he just really loved her. And they traveled a lot and started experimenting with heroin. Um, And then once Deborah was in this life, she found it really hard to get out. Um, She did religiously call home to check in, and she had last called a family member a few days after June 20th, when her dad was recovering from an eye operation, and she sounded cheerful on the call, but they didn't know that she was actually scared at the time. So before that, she had confided in a bartender that she was being stalked by her boyfriend slash pimp. Um, so we are going to use the term boyfriend slash protector instead of pimp. Um, so that is the article that Courtney mentioned from the Stella organization and the National Sex Work Project. So we got our terminology from them because we do know that a lot of the terminology used for sex work in the 80s is no longer appropriate. Um, so we just wanted to make it clear that this is the type of person that we're talking about, but we're using these certain terms to be more respectful to the sex work industry.
0: Yeah, and the same goes with client. Um, and, and if you read books, they'll usually refer to it as usually like a John or something. But in that article, they did say... Um, They prefer the term client, just a little bit more updated and more inclusive of everyone, so that's where we're getting that terminology from. Yes. And that organization is by sex workers as well, so this isn't like some outside person being like, this is what you should say. It's like sex workers themselves saying how they want to be, you know, terminology used.
1: Yes, exactly. So at this point their relationship was getting a little rocky and he wasn't being as sweet to her and he suddenly claimed that she owed him thousands of dollars. Um, So she was really upset and she's like, I don't know how I'm going to pay him. Um, And Her her fears weren't really unrealistic because he had been convicted of manslaughter, which was lowered from second degree murder, 12 years earlier. So he had shot and killed a man that he had known since childhood over a $25 debt. Um, And his sentence was only five years. But he'd also been charged with two counts of assault in different confrontations over drug dealings gone wrong and received a 10 year sentence for those. So these did run concurrently and he was out in seven years. So if she did owe him a lot of money, it was clear that he would find a way to collect. So pretty good reason for her to be upset. Um, so Max was clearly one of the first suspects in her murder, but there were no obvious connections between Deborah and Wendy. So they weren't really sure if. It was just a coincidence that they were both found in the same area. Um, And in a week, detectives had talked to about 200 people, many of whom worked in the areas where Wendy and Deborah spent their days and nights, but none of those interviews led to anything significant. Then three days later, on August 15th, a local man was in a rubber raft drifting along the Green River looking for antique bottles when he spotted two figures in the river. Um, He had to signal someone passing by and ask them to call the police and the responding officer noticed that something like held the bodies close to the river. So whoever did this had clearly spent a lot of time trying to keep these bodies hidden. Um, And he clearly did a good job because it was impossible to see them from the road. So the victims were weighed down with large rocks that were placed on their breasts and their abdomens. And one of the investigators slid on the grass and almost stepped on another female body. So either the killer had been too tired to carry the third victim into the water or he'd been spooked and had to leave the scene quicker than anticipated. So this girl looked really young, maybe mid-teens, and she was paler, but um, she had been severely sunburned probably after her death, which is just, like, a really eerie thought that you're just left out exposed and sunburned after death.
0: I never thought about that, that, like, after you die, you could get sunburned. I guess I've just never, like, heard about that in cases and stuff, and it was just, like creepy to me, I guess. Yeah, and
1: it just, like, makes it so much more sad that they were just disposed of in the way that they were, you know? Um, So this girl looked to be of mixed racial heritage, and it was obvious that she had been strangled by a ligature um, with her own blue shorts or slacks. So whoever this killer was, he was obviously very strong because he had manually strangled her, and the riverbanks were very slick, so being able to bring three women down there would not be easy, so he really had to have a lot of physical strength and he'd also managed to get the heavy rocks onto the two women in the river. So police did ask for radio silence at the scene because they didn't want the media to catch news of this and start bombarding them with questions. Um, The two women in the river were both clearly black and the girl in the bank could be either white or black. Like we said, she looked like she was of mixed racial heritage. Um, And this was significant because they believed that all of the women had been murdered by the same man at this point because now it's clearly a pattern Um, and it was unusual for a killer to target multiple racial groups so that's why the significance is there for that so fingerprints were not easy to come by since they had been in the water and slippage had begun which i hate that word Um, but that basically just means that the skin is coming off of the bone like a glove yeah so so marcia faye chapman was identified first They were able to get her fingerprints. Um, She was 31 years old, so a little bit older than the first victims. Um, She was an attractive woman who was so petite that she was known by her friends as tiny. Um, And she lived with her three children, aged 9, and three. And she did mainly support them through sex work. She left her apartment on April 1st, 1982, and never returned. And the other two women remained unidentified, um, and police sketches of what they possibly looked like were published in the local papers. So one of the women in the river had been completely nude, but the other two still wore bras that had been yanked above their breasts and twisted around, um, and they all had been strangled by a ligature. So the medical examiner's staff knew they were killed by strangulation, but they didn't release that information because these high profile cases would bring out compulsive confessors. So they wanted to make sure that they were holding back details that only the killer would know when they found him. So the killer had inserted triangular-shaped stones into two of the women's vaginas so tightly that they had to be surgically removed. So investigators were unsure exactly why this was done. Um, Maybe it was in anger because he couldn't get an erection. Maybe he just wanted to humiliate his victims. It could possibly even mean that the killer was a woman. Um, But the information about the rocks was guarded very carefully, and they didn't widely share that because, again, they wanted to make sure that they had some information that they were keeping close and not revealing at that time.
0: Yeah. And another victim was identified. Cynthia Hines was only 17. She was a vibrant and pretty girl who went by the name Cookie. She also worked as a sex worker. Um, She felt safe working because she had a male protector. He told the detectives he'd last seen her on August 11th, and she'd gotten into a black Jeep with a male driver, but he hadn't written down the license plate or been able to get a description of the driver. After seeing sketches in the paper, the third woman's family was finally able to identify her. Um, Opal Charmaine Mills was barely 16. She did have a mother, a father, and big brother who cared for her very deeply. Kathy Mills, that's Opal's mom, told investigators she had last seen her three days before Opal's body was found. So that'd be on August 12th. And Opal had told her she was going to work and called home again in the early afternoon, saying she was at a phone booth in Angle Lake State Park. So Opal was not a sex worker that we know of. Um, She said she was painting houses with her new friend Cookie, and Cookie is the other girl who was also found. Um, Kathy barely knew Cookie and didn't know her real name. She had only been to their house once. So while Opal did sometimes stay away from home for a day or so without checking in, and she had run away, like, once before, you know, it wasn't like... Very common for her to be gone for super long time. Um, and again, there's really no indication she was involved with sex work. I also think she probably wouldn't tell her mom. and if we know Cookie was, I can't imagine cookies actually painting houses. but yeah, I also don't want to just like assume, but it could be likely.
1: It could be likely or she could have been with her friend who was, even if maybe, she was not currently engaged. Maybe she was just kind of along for the ride, so to speak, or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Like she may yeah. have been around the industry, even if she wasn't directly involved, or she may have been directly involved, or maybe she had no
0: idea and really thought they were painting houses. Yeah. So, her best friend, Doris, had known Opal since they were both in fourth grade, and they saw each other every day. Um, she said Opal never mentioned sex work to her, and she'd be surprised if Opal was involved. Uh, from the time she was a toddler, people called her Little Opal because she was petite with chipmunk cheeks and a bright smile, which was just like the cutest image of a kid. <laughs> Kathy's family st- stopped speaking to her when she married Opal's father, Robert Mills, because he was black. Um, so Kathy and Robert tried to get married in Colorado, but at this time there were still laws in place that prohibited marriage between partners of different races. Again, we've not come, hasn't been that long since these things were an issue. Um, so Kathy and Robert traveled to Yakima, Washington, where Kathy's grandparents lived because they were still talking to her. So Washington was one of only 15 states with no prohibition on marriage between partners with different races at this time, which is insane, is insane, especially because with like Colorado and like Denver, like we see that as such like a liberal place, but it's like they weren't even one of the first states to, you know. So, Opal was born in Seattle on April 12th, 1966. She was named after Robert's older sister, who had been murdered in California, and her killer had never been caught. So, poor Robert losing his sister and his daughter to murder, like, that's rough. And to, like, name your daughter after your murdered sister, and then your daughter gets murdered? Like, that is horrific. Like, so eerie. Yeah. So, I bet no one in that family named anyone opal again (laughs) they're like i they're like i'm not superstitious but i'm a little (laughs) okay so opal's older brother was named garrett um they were very close and he was very protective of her opal had big dreams for her future that included a lot of kids and being rich enough to take care of her mother and buy her a house garrett said that even as a young kid she always struck him as someone who just cared more about others than herself Garrett was questioned for four hours by police. Um, Robert did have quite a few drinking problems before Opal's murder. And then after her death, he just really sank into his alcoholism and died nine years later. So he did die before he knew the resolution to this case. Mm-hmm. Um And then on August 16th, the Green River Task Force was officially organized with 25 investigators from King County, the Seattle Police Department, the Tacoma Police Department, and the Kent Police Department. And they really had no idea what was going to lie ahead. Um, And this was like right after Bundy, too, which was like the same area. So a lot of those same investigators worked on this, and it was like, what are we getting into here? We don't know. You know, is there one killer, multiple killers? Like man, woman, what's happening? (laughs) And
1: I'm just like, my goodness, Courtney and I are so mentally drained from doing podcast research for Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer. So, like, these investigators who worked on both cases, like, and we'll get into later, you know, obviously a lot of them died young from lots of health complications, and I just can't even imagine, like, what they went through Mm -hmm. emotionally working on these cases.
0: Yeah, and their families too because you know you it's it's a lot like that's that's hard that's rough um a lot going on so yeah the the investigators weren't really sure you know killing partners wasn't impossible that had been seen before but they really thought it was unlikely it's pretty unlikely two people can keep a secret yeah um and with the discovery of These three bodies, they believed all five women were put into the river at this spot and Wendy and Deborah's bodies had drifted downstream and they thought possibly the killer had seen the news and like knew they had drifted and so adjusted next time with the boulders. Mm -hmm. Even with the bodies of five young women found in a span of a few weeks, the general public were not worried because the media represented the victims as only sex workers. So there's that whole, you know oh, that never happened to me. I don't live that lifestyle. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm fine. Like, they, you know, people still don't view sex workers highly, and they're like, oh, well, if you're doing that, you know, that's what you get. But it's it's, it's bad thinking. Don't think like that. Yeah. So. Also, at this time, the term serial killer was not yet widely known, and so the public had no understanding of the fear of a serial killer on the loose. Like, I'm sure Ted Bundy seemed like an anomaly. Yeah. Like, these are probably just different things happening. Um, The many sex workers were nervous, though, and some even left the area because of this. And sex workers were encouraged to stay off the streets and only have dates with men they had met previously and police officially began calling this murderer the Green River Killer, and any similar murders from the past year went on their list as possible victims of this serial killer. So, a suspect did emerge when 35-year-old John Norris Hanks was arrested for assaulting his wife on September 9th. He had bound her ankles and choked her unconscious in the basement, and his background revealed that he had been he had murdered his first wife's sister by stabbing her 16 times.
1: Yikes. Like, you gotta really hate your in-laws for that. I mean, Jesus.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, jeez Louise. <laughs> He'd also been arrested for other assault charges and was the primary suspect in six unsolved murders in the San Francisco area in the mid-70s, where all of the woman- women had been strangled. So... Looking pretty good. Yeah. If I do say so myself. (laughs) He also arrived in Seattle in July 1982, which is right when the Green River victim started disappearing. However, after questioning him, he seemed to have a solid alibi and police lost interest in him as a suspect. He was sentenced to four years in prison for assaulting his wife, which that's pretty crazy for that time, you know, like four years. I mean, he did a horrible thing, I agree with it, but
1: for the time. It seems very progressive for the time that he would get four years for assault on your wife, because in that time, you couldn't do anything to your wife, because she was your property, so, you know, yeah, didn't work like that. Um, also, you know, spoiler alert, he was not the Green River Killer, or else we wouldn't have three episodes, so you didn't think it was going to be over yeah. that quick, did you? <laughs> yeah.
0: And that's the end. <laughs> that's
1: all the victims. Goodbye, folks. Just kidding. We're just going to spend two more episodes talking about nonsense. <laughs> We're going to talk
0: about sunshine and roses. <laughs> so, back to the depressing stuff. You guys ready? Okay. Nope. So, 18-year-old Mary Bridget Meehan was last seen by her boyfriend on September 15th, leaving the Western Six Motel on the Strip. Um... I also want to say, too, like, Anne Rule goes a lot into location in her book. I think we just kind of briefly say it, but all of these victims were kind of picked up along this same same little strip uh-huh. that was kind of known in Seattle as, like, you know, the the red, what is it, red light zone? Like, yeah. that's where you go to kind of cruise around, you know? So, just so you know, all these women are being taken from the same general region, So, she had planned to walk to the Lewis and Clark Theater, which was about two miles away, and she was eight months pregnant, and her boyfriend said he didn't know if she had been working on the streets or not. Mary was the youngest adopted child of an Irish Catholic couple in Bellevue, Washington. She lived in Bellevue her whole life and had a happy childhood with her close-knit family. She loved animals and would constantly sneak stray animals home, despite several family members being allergic to them, (laughs) and she was also very artistic. I just found
1: that part funny because I was just like imagining this little girl like every other day. And they're like, where did this cat come
0: from? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Like you go in her room and look under the bed and there's like five cats. (laughs) (laughs) So as many people did, she did hit a rebellious streak when she entered puberty. And she'd skip school often. um, And it was actually so often that she was failing several of her classes. So she was 14 or 15 when she started dating a man named Jerry. That is an alias as well. Her parents did not allow her to see him, but she would sneak out at night, and they eventually told her that if she couldn't follow their rules, she couldn't wouldn't be allowed to live there anymore. So, one night when she was 15, she came home to find the door locked, and her toes had become frostbitten when she was sleeping outside, so she just moved in with Jerry. She got pregnant, but she had a miscarriage at 15, and then she got pregnant again when she was 16. And because she was a devout Catholic, she refused to get an abortion, even though Jerry wanted her to, so he also kicked her out of his apartment. So, with nowhere to go, she started sleeping on various friends' couches, and then she did end up miscarrying her second baby as well. And that just made me so sad for her, because clearly this girl, like, just craves love so much, and... Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, that's really hard, too. Like, two miscarriages, like, that close to each other, like very hard. Yeah. So Bridget did still keep in touch with her family and called them weekly. She was come welcome to come home if she agreed to live by their rules, but she didn't want to do that. So she eventually got a job as a maid at a hotel and then at a nursing home. And in 1981, she did move back into her parents' house and was working on her GED when she met Ray. So she soon became pregnant again and her parents really disliked Ray. And he even beat her while she was pregnant and broke her ribs. So we have good reason not to like Ray. Yeah, we all hate you, Ray. Yeah. It's horrible. Mary Bridget really wanted to keep the baby, but she finally agreed that she was in no position to take care of a newborn. And after giving birth on Christmas Day in 1981, she did give her baby a boy up for adoption. She stayed with her parents until the end of January 1982 and then decided to move back in with Ray. She became pregnant again within six weeks of moving in with Ray. And that baby was due on November 27th, 1982. And after her disappearance, Ray wouldn't admit that Mary Bridget had engaged in sex work, but others in the area confirmed that she was. So a local cab driver, Melvin Wayne Foster contacted police with information. Cause he frequently drove in the area where the murder girls had disappeared. And he'd previs- previously spent nine years in prison for auto theft. Uh, Foster didn't have any concrete information and instead wanted to share his theories about the psychological state of the killer and to throw out a few ideas of other cab drivers who could be considered suspects. So big red flag. (laughs) Yeah, like we know when people start like putting themselves in the investigation, little bit of a red flag. Um, Police immediately placed him on their suspect list as he seemed just too invested in their investigation, and Foster claimed to have known some of the girls as he considered himself an unofficial social worker who liked to chat with young runaways. Melvin out here uh, trying to do, I I guess, uh, some unofficial social work, trying to really speak to people. (laughs) So... He also admitted to accepting sex acts in exchange for cab fare from some of the local sex workers, and Foster did fail a polygraph test on September 20th, 1982, Um, and sometimes he would claim he didn't know any of the murder girls, and other times he said he did. So, this guy's, you know, putting himself in the investigation, fails a polygraph test, he's seeming a pretty likely suspect for the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Deborah Lorraine Estes was last seen on September 20th, 1982. She had just turned 15 years old. She ran away from home frequently and had gotten a prescription for birth control pills when she was only 10 by telling the staff at Planned Parenthood that she was 14. She eventually moved in with her boyfriend who started using her to sell sex. Uh, they lived in various hotels along the strip. Earlier in September, Deborah reported the police that she had been raped by a client and she also used her street name, Betty Jones. Police had dropped her back off at the hotel she was living at after looking at, poli- at photo lineups and police did not know her real name and assumed she changed her mind about pressing charges when she never contacted them again. And at this point, her family was unsure if she was really missing or if she just moved to another area as she tended to do that.
1: Which we do see a lot, unfortunately with these victims because they do live the lifestyle of sometimes they're home, sometimes they're not. They kind of bounce around, just very transient. So a lot of the families don't really know that they've been missing until they've been missing for a long time. So 17-year-old Giselle LaVorne was from San Ferdinando Valley, California, and had recently moved to the Seattle area with her boyfriend, who was several years older than she was. Um, she was the youngest child of an upper-middle-class family who started running away when she was 14 and she dropped out of school altogether in the 10th grade. Her family had recently moved to California from New Orleans and she struggled to fit in and make friends, Um, and her family was just devastated when she dropped out of school because she had always been such a voracious reader and she had a near genius IQ. But Giselle decided to follow the Grateful Dead around and lived out of her backpack for a while. And after she decided to stay in Seattle with her boyfriend, she began working as a sex worker on the c Strip, which is that area that we mentioned before that was very common for sex work in Seattle. So on July 13th, 1982, Giselle left the apartment she shared with her boyfriend around 1 p.m. to go work on the streets, and she never returned. Her boyfriend contacted police, and she was officially listed as missing on July 17th. Then on September 25th, a trail biker was riding on empty roads six miles away from the Green River when he noticed a terrible smell, and in some overgrown bushes he found the badly decomposed body of a woman. And although her facial features could not be determined due to decomposition, she did have a bird tattoo on her breast that matched one that her boyfriend had described to police, Um, so Giselle was officially identified by that. Um, And her body was found only a couple of miles from where she was last seen. The area had been nearly abandoned by the Port Authority buyout and there was nothing there anymore. So it was really the perfect place to conceal a body. And it was also close to the SeaTac airport where the sounds of incoming airplanes might drown out any screams. So they're like, maybe we should watch this area a little more. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So Linda Jane Rule was last seen on September 26th when she left the hotel room. She shared with her boyfriend Bobby between 2 and 4 p.m., I don't remember if Bobby was an alias or not. I guess it doesn't really matter, but it may be. Yeah. She had planned to walk to Kmart to shop for clothes, um, and her boyfriend said that he wasn't concerned when she didn't come home that night because he assumed that she had been arrested. So Linda had turned to the streets at 16 when her parents divorced. She had planned to marry her 24-year-old boyfriend and start a, quote, normal life with him, Um, and Bobby looked for her in local jails and spoke to her friends, but no one had seen her, so he did file a missing persons report. So investigators started wondering if the killer could be a frequent flyer because the victims were all picked up near the SeaTac airport. Um, however, after checking with other major airports and not finding any similar crimes near them, they were pretty sure the killer was local because it wouldn't really make sense if he was just flying in and out of Seattle to do this, you know? Yeah. So Melvin Foster, I'm going to come back to him, Um, the cab driver, so he agreed to let police search his home and he did go public on October 5th by telling reporters that he was a suspect in the Green River Killings. Um, So he was on the news almost nightly and he appeared to just love the attention. So Foster had married for the first time at the age of 30 and was then married and divorced five times after that. And his last marriage had ended after his wife's baby from a previous relationship was taken away because of unexplained injuries So he was then engaged to a 17-year-old who said that she broke up with him after he became obsessed with a 14-year-old. So he's just a really great guy. Um, So police continued to keep him under 24-7 surveillance because something's just off there. So now Barbara Kubik Patton was a middle-aged housewife who also inserted herself into the investigation. So she claimed to be a psychic and would go in the streets to conduct interviews and attempt to investigate the murders herself, And she even contacted some of the victims' families, and her and Melvin Foster somehow became friends and were intent on solving these murders together. And she will come back up again later. (laughs) So, sometime in October, 16-year-old Terry Renee Milligan was reported missing by her boyfriend, um, and then he disappeared after contacting police, so he wasn't available for questioning. So Terry had been a bright child and a good student with dreams of studying computer science at Yale and she was also actively involved in her church, but things did change for her when she became pregnant in middle school and she dropped out to take care of her son. Case Lee was also reported missing by her husband around the same time and fellow sex workers reported that Case frequently had bruises and cuts all over her body. So at this time the FBI Behavioral Science Unit started putting together a profile of the killer. So they consider the possibility that he was a rogue cop or maybe a man pretending to be a cop um, because he may be someone who had gained the trust of sex workers or someone who intimidates them through his supposed authority. So a couple different theories they're working with there. They believed that he would have the mental capacity to hide the bodies and to throw them in the river to wash away any forensic evidence. Um, And he was truly hiding them in places he hoped that they wouldn't be found instead of displaying them as other serial killers had done. Um, So he did show that he understood that they should not be found, that he would get Mm -hmm. caught. Um, They think that he felt no remorse and that he believed he was doing humanity a service by getting rid of sex workers. They said he likely worked, lived, hunted, or fished near the Green River and was familiar with it. Um, They believed that he would have had a previous criminal or psychological history and that he was raised by a single parent who would have been strict, bordering on abusive. They speculated that he would be attracted to women, but that he was really bitter because he had been burned by them before and would likely be angry at the type of woman who chose to sell herself for sex. He would work a job that required physical strength more than mental strength and would be in good physical condition and they guessed that he would be white mid-20s to early 30s but they weren't very confident about the age and it was also unusual like we mentioned that a serial killer would kill women of multiple races um, because at that time and even now they usually killed within their own race. 23-year-old Denise Darcel Bush was from Portland but traveled to Seattle to work some because the pay was better there, and she was working in Seattle in the fall of 1982 and was last seen on the Pacific Highway South heading to the convenience store to buy cigarettes on October 8th. In the past, she had suffered from epileptic seizures, but they were controlled with medication, so friends were unsure if she had had a medical episode somewhere or if something else had happened to her. 18-year-old Shonda Leah Summers went missing on October 7th or 8th from the same intersection that Denise went missing from um, and the date was fuzzy because no one reported her missing for almost a month. And as we mentioned in the beginning, unfortunately, a lot of these victims we only have one or two lines about, which is really sad. Mm -hmm. Shirley Marie Sherrill, who was 19 years old, also went missing around this time. Um, She sometimes worked in Portland as well, but Seattle was her home city. Um, and Seattle was where one of her close friends and co-workers saw her just before she disappeared on October 18th. Um, they had had lunch before they set out for work, and she was last seen in Chinatown talking to two men in a car, but her friend left before she saw if Shirley got in with them, and then they never saw her again. Then in November, a woman who was given the name Penny Bristow, so we don't really know what her name is, um, had been working at a minimum wage job and when her shift ended it was dark and it looked like it was going to rain on her walk back to the apartment. So she was newly pregnant and wasn't feeling well so she decided to try and hitchhike since a cab would cost close to half of what she had made that day. So a man in a pickup truck stopped to pick her up and was clearly looking for a sex worker. Um, She said that she tried to avoid that lifestyle, but he offered her $20 for oral sex and so she agreed because she did need the money Um, and she asked him if he was the Green River Killer and he said that he wasn't. He even showed her his wallet with money sticking out and flashed various pieces of ID, one of them from his job. They then went to the nearby woods and when she went to perform oral sex, he had trouble becoming erect and this angered him and he knocked her down and pushed her face into the ground. She fought back and pleaded for him to let her go, and he was shouting that she had bitten him on the penis, but she had not done that. He then got behind her and put her in a chokehold, and when he loosened his grip to try to get stronger pressure, she was able to duck and twist away, um, and she ran away and he tripped before he could run after her. So when Penny told the Green River detectives about what happened, her memory was very precise. She said he was a white man in his 30s with brown hair and a mustache. So in King County, 20-year-old Becky Marrero had been gone since December 2nd. Um, She was a good friend of Deborah Estes, who we mentioned earlier. Becky had a one-year-old baby that she would leave with her mother frequently. And on the day that she left, she told her mom, I'm going to be gone for a long time, and where I'm going, I can't take a baby. Um, Her mom thought that she was joking or lying, and she hadn't even taken a suitcase, just a small blue carry-on bag with an extra pair of slacks, a blouse, and her makeup. So her mom didn't think that she was really gonna be gone that long or didn't plan on it. So she asked her father for $20 to pay for a room for one night and he gave it to her. Um, She was planning on taking a bus, which she did frequently, and her mom believed that she had gone to make money for Christmas, but then never came back. They did find out that Becky had been registered at a motel through December 1st. And someone had also signed Deborah Estee's name in the guest log as being in the same room. Um, And there were reported sightings of Becky, but none of them were validated. So likely the last Washington State disappearance of 1982 occurred on December 28th when Colleen Renee Brockman disappeared. She was only 15 and she lived with her father and brother and she had run away a couple of times before but she always came back within a few days. And this time she took a lot of her things with her and no one knew exactly why she left. Her father did file charges against her in the hopes that it might um, bring her to the attention of law enforcement more quickly and maybe she could get some counseling. And all of her clothes were gone, all of her Christmas gifts, and also her family stereo, and some money. And one of her friends reported that Colleen had begun engaging in sex work and her friend Bunny had seen her and was scared for her when she told her what she was doing. Bunny said that she seemed happy with what she was doing and that she was treated right and doing okay. Um, She did, however, confide in her that she had been raped but that it couldn't get any worse than that. So after the new year Colleen had not been found despite the missing person report and the other girls working near Colleen didn't know her very well so they didn't think much of it when they hadn't seen her for a while. So Anne Rule does mention a former sex worker who wrote to her years later about an experience that she had in either 1982 or 1983. Um, She couldn't remember the exact year but she was 19 years old and she was a sex worker who went by the name Kim Carnes. So one night she was picked up by a man at a Greyhound bus station who said that he wanted to take her to a party. So she started getting suspicious when he drove for a long time without stopping and she started asking where they were going, but he just kept saying that they would be there soon and then he started to seem kind of nervous. And he finally stopped in a secluded area and made her look at photos of women with panties tied around their necks. Um, And he also pulled out a bag of used lingerie and tried to get her to put it on, but she refused. He then held a gun to her head and made her perform oral sex on him. So she said that she gagged because he had bumps all over his penis and that made him angry. And she said that the man never ejaculated and eventually drove her back to the bus station. Later, when the killer's photo would be published in the paper, Kim would recognize him. She said that he was very average looking and she initially had no red flags when he picked her up and he just seemed really safe to her. Um, Kim didn't report this incident to the police because she didn't trust them. One time she had been arrested for prostitution and the officer opened her... opened her shirt to look at her breasts and she had also been raped by her stepfather as a child but her mother didn't believe her as we said last week happens a lot um, and so Kim learned that the victims are never believed so she didn't see any reason to report her story. Um, I know some people can get angry at situations like this where they're like you got away and you could have described the man like you could have made a difference but there's a reason she didn't go to police clearly so that's not her fault.
0: Yeah, and Ann Roll did receive a lot of mail, you know, with different occurrences similar to mm-hmm. this. Um, so, clearly, you know, this guy was just being horrible to everyone. So, in January 1983, a man laying shallow pipes in a ditch near Northgate Hospital was removing brush when he found a human skeleton. The remains were of a small human, and an autopsy could not reveal any cause of death. The body had no soft tissue left, and police were unsure if she was another victim of the Green River Killer, and dental records did confirm that it was the remains of Linda Jane Rule. Alma Ann Smith from Walla Walla, Washington, was working on March 3rd, 1983. Her best friend remembered her as an extremely generous girl who didn't have a mean bone in her body. Alma and her friend and roommate, Sheila, which is an alias, was looking for clients on March 3rd. And Sheila returned, and at that point, Alma was gone. Um, So she asked others, you know, where'd Alma go? And they were like, yeah, you know, she went with an average looking white guy in a blue pickup truck, Um, just your standard white man. (laughs) Sheila grew concerned when Alma hadn't returned in over an hour, and she never returned. Dolores Smith was tall and slender with a lovely smile. At 17 years old, she didn't have many social connections, but was known to wait for clients in a certain area. By March 8th, she was no longer waiting in the same place, but her friends thought possibly she just found a better location. 17-year-old Sandra K. Gabbert was last seen strolling the Strip on April 17th in what appeared to be one of the more dangerous areas. She had been a star on the girls' basketball team, but she dropped out of school because she was bored and was living with her teenage boyfriend. They could barely afford the hotel room and fast food, and her mother knew she'd turn to sex work to make ends meet. Her mother was worried, especially with the recent disappearances, that she was going to get killed. But Sandra said, oh, mom, I'm not going to get killed. Her mother didn't push too much because she didn't want to push her away. Um, So she was like, you know, if I keep pushing this, she's going to stop talking to me. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to let it go. And the last time her mother saw her, they were at a Mexican restaurant, and Sandra was talking about traveling to San Francisco and Hollywood. Her mother said she put her arms around her and asked her to be careful and told her she loved her. Four days after this, Sandra was gone. Kimmy Kai-Pitzer got into an old green pickup truck in downtown Seattle a few hours after Sandra went missing. Investigators wondered if it was possible for the same person to take both girls. Kimi Kai and Sandra looked somewhat alike. they were both young for their age. Um, they had dark hair and bangs, but Sandra had been alone just before she disappeared. Um, she had just been walking with her boyfriend a few minutes before, but she was alone at the time she um, disappeared. And Kimi Kai was walking with her boyfriend protector when she signaled a man in a truck to turn the corner so she could get into his vehicle without being seen. Kimmy Kai had tried working in Portland, but a lot of girls said she was very innocent and naive, and so she went to Seattle with her boyfriend. Kimmy Kai's boyfriend described the vehicle as an older green pickup truck with a camper on the back and primer paint on the passenger door. He thought it was possibly either a Ford or a Dodge, and the car description was printed in the newspapers, but investigators weren't hopeful because... I mean, there's a lot of older trucks that probably fit this exact description, so they couldn't imagine, like, many leads would come from it. Especially, like, a pickup truck with a camper in Seattle. It's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Kimmy Kai's mother described her as a petite girl who loved unicorns and anything purple. Once she hit puberty, she did have a bit of a defiant streak, um, she ended up falling in love with a boy and moving out to be with him in February 1983. She still called home every week and was very adventurous and wasn't afraid of anything. Sometime in the third week of April, Gail and Matthews, who was 24, registered at a motel. She was living with a 30-year-old man from Texas named Kurt, who she'd met in 1982. Gail had lost her apartment in February of 1983, and she'd Just been living for a week or two with different friends, just kind of couch surfing. While Gail was older than most of the victims, she had a similar lifestyle. She'd been married, but was either divorced or separated by 1983. And neither Gail nor Kurt had much money or any permanent jobs. Um, They drifted and he would gamble a lot for money. And now and then Gail would contribute money and Kurt would never ask where she got it from. And she would never tell. It was just kind of one of those... Just don't ask. I have money. On the last night, Kurt saw Gail. Things were normal for them. They'd stayed in a motel for a few days, but they had no more money. On the night of April 22nd, they were in a tavern a few blocks north of their hotel. They shared a few beers while Kurt played Pac-Man, and then Kurt decided he was going to go to a different tavern to try and win some money. Gail told him she would try to find a different way to keep their motel room for another night or two. So, Kurt left and saw a blue or green Ford pickup passing, and the truck had many primer circles on it, like it was being prepared to be painted, and then Kurt was just startled because he saw Gail in the passenger seat next to a man with light hair who appeared to be in his early 30s. He was wearing a plaid shirt. So, Kurt waved, but Gail didn't respond. Um, He said she just seemed dazed, and Kurt watched the truck disappear, and he just felt and sensed that Gail was in danger, and he just... But he was like, I'm overreacting. You know, I just need... I'm probably making something out of nothing. Like, I'm sure she's fine. But Gail never returned to the motel that night. Kurt called 911 to report her missing, and he said he was told he couldn't make an official missing persons report because he was not related to her. Which, what? Yeah. (laughs) So Kurt waited for Gail to come back or leave a message, but there was nothing. He looked for her in places they'd gone together... Um, He didn't believe that she would just leave, but he did eventually move on. He was later interviewed and even hypnotized, but he could not remember anything except the frozen look on Gail's face. Eight days after Kurt last saw Gail, On April 30th, the same intersection was the scene of an apparent abduction. Mary Malvar was 18 and the cherished daughter of a large family. She was on the highway with her boyfriend who was vetting the cars and telling her which cars were safe to get in and making sure she came back safely in a reasonable time. A dark truck pulled up that had a light spot on the passenger door, likely a coat of primer paint. Marie spoke to the driver, nodded, and then got in. Her boyfriend followed as he usually did and it appeared Marie was upset. He couldn't hear what she was saying but it looked like she wanted to get out of the truck so her boyfriend did get stuck at a red light when he was trying to follow the truck and the truck did not have tail lights so he ended up losing him so he went back to the parking lot to wait for the man to bring marie back but he never did because marie was engaged in sex work her boyfriend was pretty hesitant to go to the police um, and he was also nervous about telling her father but when four days went by without hearing from her He went to the police and reported her missing, but he didn't tell the whole truth. Um, He didn't say, you know, why, what they were doing on the highway, why she got in the truck, none of that. Um, If he had, investigators definitely would have reacted differently because we now have all this knowledge of the Green River Killer. Um, But more so without telling any of the details, police suspected her boyfriend had harmed her or Marie had just left him. So, Marie's father, Jose, was very concerned because she did not stay away from home for long, and she called frequently. So, he tried to retrace the route the man took to try and find her. On May 3rd, they found an almost hidden residential street, a cul-de-sac. In the driveway of one of the houses, they spotted an old pickup truck with a primer splotched on the passenger door. So, they called the police And detectives came to the house and talked to the man inside. The detective said the man said there was no woman in there and there hadn't been a woman in there. And the man seemed straightforward, not nervous, so there's no probable cause. We'll just leave. (laughs) Which I find a little weird, especially if you keep getting reports of this truck, that you wouldn't be like, you know, like, oh, there's no woman in here. Okay, cool. I get there's no probable cause, but... And like we said, like,
1: because that truck is such a common truck in the area it's like what judge is going to say like okay this is reason enough and you know and also i don't know at this time what details the police knew about like following him because Mm -hmm. the boyfriend had been very vague about what he told them so they
0: may not have had all the information that we have now maybe you know yeah so on may 8th 1983 King County detectives were quietly investigating the discovery of a woman's body in a location some distance from the Green River and the Strip. The circumstances were so bizarrely ritualistic that they had first thought it had to be a different killer entirely. Um, the investigators were very tight-lipped about re- releasing details because they may be detailers o- details only the killer would know. So. 22-year-old Carol Ann Christensen was a single mother of a five-year-old daughter, and she'd been excited on May 3rd because she was finally gotten a job after looking for a long time for work. So Carol shopped near the Pack Highway, and she was on foot because she didn't have a car, but she wasn't a sex worker. Her new job was as a waitress at a local tavern, and she lived close enough that she could walk to work. So she'd only worked a day or two when she failed to come home one night and her mother was frantic. Uh, Carol adored her daughter, Sarah, and would not just leave her. Like she wouldn't just up and leave. Carol Ann's body was found a few days later in an area known as Maple Valley. So today, Maple Valley is very built up, but at the time of the disappearance, it was heavily wooded. Uh, A family searching for edible mushrooms had to go only a short distance off the road when they came across her body. She was lying on her back in a half-sitting position, and they could not see her face. Someone had pulled a brown grocery bag over her head. Her hands were folded across her belly, and they were topped with ground sausage meat. Um, There were two dead trout that were cleaned and gutted that lay vertically along her throat. A wine bottle had been placed across her lower abdomen, and it was very much a stage scene. And this is not uncommon to sexual psychopaths. And they really believed it was kind of a taunt to the detectives. So, Carol had a lot of differences from the other victims. She wasn't found in a river or close to, you know, the Pacific, like the Pack Highway. She wasn't a sex worker. She had been strangled by a ligature. Um, in her case, it was a bright yellow braided plastic rope, which the killer had left behind. Uh, She was fully clothed in jeans, a Seattle Seahawks shirt, a white zippered polyester jacket, and blue and gray running shoes. The grocery bag said Larry's Market on it, which was a high-end supermarket located on the Strip. Um, Her murder wasn't originally investigated by the Green River Task Force due to her lifestyle and the M.O. of her death, but once they learned where she lived and worked, and it was right in that zone where the Green River Killer attacked, they believed it was possible that she was another victim. And at this point, this is where we're going to end part one. So as I said, it's very rough. A lot of victims. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the victims' names from this episode um, because we do want to focus on those names. It is Wendy Lee Caulfield, Deborah Lynn Bonner, Marsha Faye Chapman, Cynthia Hines, Opal Mills, Mary Meehan, Deborah Estes, Giselle Lavorne, Linda Jane Rule, Terry Renee Milligan, Case Lee, Denise Darcel Bush, Shonda Leah Summers, Shirley Marie Sherrill, Becky Marrero, Colleen Renee Brockman, Alma Ann Smith, Dolores Smith, Sandra K. Gabbert, Kimmy Kai Pitzer, Gail Lynn Matthews, Marie Malver, Carol Ann Christensen, and there are countless other sexual assault victims who did live who are referenced by alias or came forward after, Um, so those women as well. And possibly other murder victims whose
1: remains have still never been found or never been identified um, as victims of the Green River Killer And also keep in mind that everything that we've covered in this episode happened from July of 1982 to May of 1983. So a 10-month span and all of those victims that we know of, again, there could be many more. So really shows the fact that this killer was just, I wouldn't even say escalating because it wasn't like it progressively got worse. It just like immediately was body after body after body and these investigators
0: had never seen anything like this before. Yeah, definitely. Um, And yeah, it's just really sucky. And sorry to leave you guys on such a crappy note. If you do want part two immediately, Patreons will get that. If you're wanting to like, I need to know more now. um, Yeah, you can do that. And sorry, Patreons, you guys will get part three next week
1: because we cannot record and edit all three parts in one week so you guys will get the first two parts today and then next week when everyone gets part two our patreon listeners will get part three and then you guys will get a bonus after that so um just wanted to make that clear all right let's see if we can bring this up a little bit Courtney I hope you got a good one what's your perk of the week (laughs)
0: Okay, so my perk of the week again. Um, last week I was talking about how I hated myself because I was reading this Green River <laughs> book and I was reading Just Mercy and I was watching serial killer documentaries. So took a took a hard sharp left. And uh, my perk of the week is a book called P.S. I Still Love You by Jenny Han. Um, it is the sequel to the book to All the Boys I've Loved Before. So it's a little mini series. Kind of like a little teen romance. The perfect thing you need. Um, They're actually movies on Netflix as well. So the third book, I'm reading it soon. I just got it available at the library. Um, But it's, the movie is coming out this year on Netflix. So they're all Netflix originals. So once I finish those, I'm going to go watch the movies. And it's been the perfect palate cleanser for a very hard, tough reading spell of (laughs) sadness (laughs) So well, that's they're good. very light and, you know, little high school romances and just everything you need to feel better.
1: <laughs> that's good. That definitely sounds more uplifting and we all love a good young adult book. I know at least Corey and I do. I hope you guys do too, yes. but
0: yeah, I really enjoyed them and I really have enjoyed reading these. Um, just a really great perk of the week palate cleanser for this depressingness, um, <laughs> Uh Jacqueline, what is your perk
1: of the week? So my perk of the week is also a book, but I'm going to take a page out of Courtney's book. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Um, And it's a really sad book, but it's really good. Um, So for Christmas, my work did like a Secret Santa thing. And so my Secret Santa got me a bag of coffee and a book. So perfect for me. Um, And so I finally got around to starting this book. Um, So it's called The Orphan Collector by Ellen Marie Wiseman. Um, And it does take place during the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. So very eerie. Um, like yeah. when they're describing like what's happening there and like people are being refused on the trolley because they don't have masks and you know all this stuff Um, and then it goes into you know the actual story which I don't want to get into in case you guys plan on reading it Um, but it's like super good and while it is sad at least it's somewhat fiction I mean I'm sure the events actually happened but you know it's not as gut-wrenching as the green river killer book so yeah um but it's it's been a very like it's a really really good read you know like i love a good light fluffy book but this one is just very like it's intense but you get like sucked into it and it's just written Mm -hmm. really well and i just really enjoy it so even though it's sad and then my next book is definitely going to have to be something light and fluffy to bring this back up um but it's a really (laughs) really good book and i also always appreciate like little gifts that people are like oh like I saw this and I thought you would like it and I'm like I did thank you <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah so, that is my perk of the week um if you guys want to tell us what books you're reading you can find us on instagram at caffeinatedcrimespod you can find us on twitter at that's caffcrimespod that's c-a-f-f crimes pod we are on facebook at caffeinatedcrimespodcast or you can just send us a good old-fashioned email at caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail Um, As Courtney mentioned, if you guys want part two right now, along with other bonus episodes, Q&As, gifts, all kinds of fun stuff happening, you can go to patreon.com slash caffeinatedcrimes and see what we have going on over there. And we're still
0: doing our Apple Reviews giveaway. Once we get 250 reviews on Apple Podcasts, we will give away a pin, a sticker, and a gift card to the coffee shop of your choice. That's for $10 and yeah so we're doing that once we get to 50 we'll draw someone just make sure you put your name or send us a message some identifying information so that we can like actually get it to you um but in the meantime go have a cup of coffee and don't commit a crime